Thanks. Um, so thank you, Pip, for inviting us. And I think we should start um, by saying just a little bit about the Oxford Internet Institute, since many of you won't have heard of it, one or two will. Um, <clears throat> so the Oxford Internet Institute is a department here at the University of Oxford that's in the Social Science Division, not in the Humanities Division. And our remit is to study the social aspects of the internet and the relationship between the internet and society. And this means a lot of different things for different people. It's a, it's a multidisciplinary department. We've got people from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, I come from information science. Catherine comes from history. We've got people from physics and political science and sociology and economics and uh, all a whole a law, a whole gamut of different disciplines mm -hmm. trying to understand things related to the internet and how it's changing the way we work, we live, we play, we interact with each other and so forth. Um, the work that this is part of is, a, is one of the strands of things that have been going on at OAI, which is how digital technologies have been altering, allowing people to alter the way they do research across different disciplines, in the sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities. Um, Today, obviously, we'll be talking mostly about the humanities uh, aspect of that. Um, I'm also giving a talk tomorrow morning where I might touch on a few of these social science and science things we've been doing, but we won't do that this afternoon. So this topic is something that we've actually taught in various versions at the Digital Humanities at Oxford Summer School for the last three years, three years now. Um, and it stems out of some work that originally started in 2008 that um, was uh, a project that I led and that I hired Catherine to join in on and then she's since gone off and done lots of other things. Um, that was a project fun funded by an organization called JISC. I mean, how many of you know who JISC is, most of you? So it, it used to stand for Joint Information Statistics Committee, but now it doesn't stand for anything, it's just JISC. <laughs> it's one of these things that used to stand for things but don't anymore. Um, and JISC had a basic issue at the time, which was they put a lot of money into digitizing various resources. And their uh, people who gave them money started to come to them and say, has this money been well spent? You know, we've spent millions on digitizing a variety of things. Um, is the, should we continue to spend money on digitizing these things or not? And so they put out a call that we answered um, to try and understand some of the impacts of the first, of what they called phase one digitization program, the first phase of digitization that they did starting in 2003, was it? Mm -hmm. um, so 2003 um, on for the next couple of years. They've had since additional rounds of digitization and lots of other digitization funding and so forth, and some of which we've been involved in. So this project was meant to do a couple of things. First, it was to, you know, on a very simple level, measure the impact of those five of those first six digitization projects. But also we had this idea to make this toolkit that we'll be talking about in some more detail later that would hopefully be live on beyond the project and it, as it's proven to have done um, to help other people start to measure their own impacts and to start to think about the impacts digital collections can have. So the title of our talk today, Impact of the Process, Considering the Reach of Resources from the Start, has to do with the fact that uh, impact isn't something you can just sort of sit down and say, on one day, here's the impact, I can go look at my Google Analytics or something and come up with a number and say, this is my impact and I've only done it once and I'll move on. Um, instead, we're gonna have you think about the idea that it's something that you have to think through throughout the life cycle of your project if you're running a digital resource or even if you're not building a digital resource yourself as a user of digital resources, it's worth thinking about because 
Um, presumably, as you come to rely on various resources, you don't want them to go away because they were unable to demonstrate to their funders that they should have sustained funding, and so they get closed down, um, which is often a challenge for a lot of these projects. Mm -hmm. So just as a bit of a query, I, didn't, I wasn't here when you introduced yourself. So um, how many of you are doing anything that you would say has to do with either maintaining or building a digital collection of some sort someplace? One, two, three, four, okay. Um, how many of you are doing anything you would consider teaching others how to use various digital resources? Okay, one, two, three. Um, how many of you consider yourself mainly users of various humanities resources? Okay, one, two, three, four, five. Um, are there any other categories that people might put themselves into in their terms of their relationship to? Hoping to do a project. Okay, hoping to do a project. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good, so hoping to do a project. That's another couple. Okay, good. Um, and that, that, those people are in the best situation because they haven't, <laughs> as going into it, you can think about these things from the start. Mm -hmm. So this question of what impact is and why we should even consider it. Now there's two things, we'll come back to this at the very end, we might discuss it at the end, of some of you may have heard of this impact agenda that's floating around, this, this, this demand that various people show the economic value of what they're doing or the societal impact. That's not really what we're hooked into here. Um, there's a lot of issues around that whole impact agenda, but we tend to think about the question slightly differently. Everybody who's doing any kind of scholarly work wants to have some kind of impact on the world, presumably. You don't want to have nobody read your articles, have nobody ever cite anything you did. So you're, you're doing things because you want them to do something to somebody, whether it's give them a new access to resources or to take up your ideas or whatever. So. Um, we think about impact in this way, and that it's not even a singular. We should actually say, what do you mean by impact? That there's lots of different kinds of impacts, and we'll go, go through some of those today. And these kinds of impacts that you might be interested in for, for digital resources could be a lot of things. You know, here we've listed a few. Uh, reaching the intended audience, which is sometimes the easiest thing to do because it's who you know you're trying to get at. Um, but reaching new audiences is something that many people have found in their digital projects, we'll give you examples, it's not something they set out to do in the beginning, but they discovered over the course of having built it that new people were finding interesting uses for what they were um, doing in, with their collections. And then the most successful ones have been able to capitalize on that and build it out further. Mm. Increasingly, those of you who are putting in grant proposals are, going, are asked to sort of speculate about these new audiences. When you're asked to, in HRC bids, do things like um, your pathways impact. How many of you put in an HRC uh, proposal anytime in the recent past, anybody? Okay, well, if you haven't, this is something you have to look forward to if you start to propose to the HRC. Mm -hmm. um, they ask you to identify the potential impacts that your project might have down the road. Mm -hmm. And to think about the potential impacts, you have to start to think about not only who you initially had in mind, but who might other, what other kinds of people might be able to start using it. And to do that, you have to start thinking through things like how do you attract users and new uses to your project that are beyond um, what might be obvious. Now, one of the things about digital research in, across the disciplines, again, the science, social science, humanities, is the easiest thing to do is to let people do exactly what they always did, but faster and easier, right? 
So if, you, if everybody in a certain field was looking at, I don't know, you know the resources better, what, what's some resource that people have consulted in paper for a long time? Oh, so um, the census reports. So the census reports. You know, people were always using the census reports. If all you did was simply made a digital version of the census reports that they could bring up on their screen that looked exactly like it did on paper, mm -hmm. and they could consult it in exactly the same way they did on paper, that's good, right? Because then people don't have to travel and they can get it. But the question you need to ask is, can it do something beyond that? Is it, are there new questions that can emerge from this? Are there new uses? Are there new kinds of uh, things that can be done? Um, for instance, with census reports, is it possible to automatically, through the digitization process, recreate the tables in a way that can be downloaded automatically to, say, Excel, mm -hmm. that you could start to do new calculations without having to do this all manually? Well, that'd be a new kind of use that wasn't available in the paper version that can enable new kinds of impacts. Um, Connected to that are this idea of what kind of new research questions might be possible once resources are made available digitally. Uh, this is a difficult question for people to answer. We ask people this all the time. Yeah. And we're going out when, even after they've built collections, and we say, okay, so beyond you know, the, the faster and easier thing, what completely new are you able to do once you've got your, the, these resources available? And oftentimes, the initial reaction from people is, oh, it's nothing new, it's really the same stuff. But when you start to probe them on it, and start to get them thinking about it. They start to come up with lots of little examples of things that really weren't possible with the paper version. And I think we'll probably have a few examples of that pop up a little later in the talk. And then finally, this, this last uh, question of enabling new approaches to education. Several of you said you teach um, these uh, how students how to use digital materials or just materials in general in the humanities. Um, one of the striking things we found when we did focus groups with, say, um, undergraduates at the university level if you think back not that long ago, uh, when was the first point at which most people studying humanities topic would be allowed access to primary materials, you know, original documents? It wasn't until pretty well along in your career. You know, you probably once you were a postgraduate student, um, you might be able to get access to a specialized archive and see some stuff firsthand. Um, mostly when you were an undergraduate, you were dealing with secondhand accounts and other people's versions of things and maybe sort of poorly produced uh, plates in, in books. Um, what we're seeing now is that, you know, first and second year undergraduates at university level can suddenly get access to primary resources that are in an excellent digital version. And they can start to see the primary materials right away. And increasingly, um, clever teachers, we're seeing lots of clever teachers who are doing interesting projects to get students working with this primary material right away and start to get them excited about doing history or, or literature or anything else that has some of these, these humanities resources available um, from the very beginning of their education, mm. and that this uh, gets them excited about it in new ways that doing everything secondhand didn't, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not just to do with trust. I mean, it's not just about letting first years into the archives where they might touch things without gloves on or, you know, not fully respect how to turn a page. It's, um, it's about knowing the questions to ask. Anyone who's used a historical archive knows that you have to really know what's in there or how to navigate the, the sort of front line, the gatekeepers, the archivists who, you know, quite sensibly, you know, want to know what you're looking for and want to sort of be able to negotiate, mediate that relationship between you and, and the archival materials. Well, with a digital archive, you know, that gatekeeper role has really fallen away. And so, you know, undergraduates to fully, you know, fledged researchers 
can experiment with questions. They can just try something and see what pops up, or they can use the same research questions that they've been dealing with for a long time and see totally new material pop up. So it's it's not just about you know walking through the door and you know being sort of moderated. It's about just being able to jump through that door. Exactly. Um, so. The idea behind, if, you, if, you're, if you're a holder of a resource, or you're considering being a holder of a resource, of, of measuring impact, is that you need to start to think through these things as you develop projects and how, what kind of data you might be able to gather. And the idea of data sometimes scares off some people in the humanities because it seems too scientific or positivist or something. Um, but it's not that, not that scary. I mean, as, as Catherine could probably say, when she joined the project, she, she had just finished her PhD in history, mm -hmm. had never used any of these kind of tools in the past, never had any social mm -hmm. science training, if I remember right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and was sort of thrown in at the deep end and told to start doing this stuff. And yeah. maybe you could tell them a bit about that process. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that scary. Um, some parts, you know, you, you, need, you need a helping hand. And I hope that's what we've developed with the, with the TIDSA toolkit. You know, I wrote it very much from, um, from my experience as, you know, as a humanities researcher coming into a very social science environment, I had questions. I didn't really understand what some of these um, methods were, and I had to start from scratch. And so all of the sort of introductory materials that we wrote for the toolkit came very much from my, my experience of going through that process. Um, some of them are, you know, are remarkably similar to the sorts of qualitative research I did as a, as a historian. So, you know, I guess um, one of our um, contributors said, you know, uh, this is, you know, the difference between interviewing um, people for these sorts of impact projects is that they can talk back. So you're dealing with things that can talk back. It's a very dynamic relationship. And that's actually really exciting. Um, you know, it requires a bit of an, um, adaptation, but it's, it's a really exciting process. It's great to be able to sort of be a part of an iterative process. So I thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> and we'll give you the details of the toolkit in just a little bit. Mm. Um, as I said, you know, the idea of being able to show your impact when you're putting in uh, future funding applications uh, can be extremely valuable, particularly in the current uh, financial climate. Mm. Um, and being able to know that you're a relevant part of the community here at the bottom, that presumably, you know, as I said, you're trying to make some contributions, learning better what that community consists of, because surprising numbers of, of uh, people that we've worked with on their digital resources, when we first asked them, who, who uses your, your digital collection? Their initial answer is, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> we have no idea. We, have, we know a few of them, you know, some of the people who contact us periodically. But on a broader scale, there's very little awareness of who might be using their resource, other than their sort of preconceived notions of who probably would use it. And sometimes they find out surprising things when they start to delve into this, of who's mm -hmm. using it in, in interesting and surprising ways. So um, one of the things you have to do when you're beginning is to, to start to think about who the audience and key stakeholders you know about are, because then you can extend from there, and to identify the kinds of impacts that you think your resource can have, and then to d identify some of the connections that already exist within the, the, the networks you've got. You know, maybe say uh, the library or museum that you're part of, or the institution you know, like Oxford that you're part of. What kind of connections that are already there can you, can you build upon? Um, 
Now we'll go into some of these in a bit more detail about the kinds of things you can measure, users, types of use and awareness. Let's, let's skip past these next couple slides relatively quickly to get into some of the case studies because then I think you'll see it in a bit more detail. These methods are all available on the, the website we'll give you the link to. Also, it's spelled T-I-D-S-R and you can Google that and all the first page hits are for us. Um, you should say why that's, I mean, that's one well, of the I'll things. I'll get back to that. Sure. So, so, so well, I'll <laughs> say it now since you brought it up. So one of the things about digital resources that many people don't consider is that it has to be findable. And it has to be findable, like it or not, with Google, right? And if you name your resource something that is so generic that it could be a billion other things, the likelihood of you ever coming up in those top list of hits is really, really low. Um, if you name it something that is unique and discoverable, you've got a much better chance of somebody looking for your stuff, finding your stuff. So ours is T-I-D-S-R, which doesn't mean anything, it doesn't spell anything, but it's ours. So if you Google it, you find our stuff and lots of our stuff and nothing else, or very few other things else, some, mm -hmm. some other little weird Japanese things, but uh, mostly our stuff. <laughs> the, um, another example of that is HISPOP. Mm -hmm. uh, if you Google HISPOP, the stuff that comes up is HISTPOP. It's the Historical Populations Report. And it, they, they've done a good job, again, at being able to be findable. Now there's others that are much more difficult to discover based on their names and the titles. One thing you never want to do is say, say you've got the collection of uh, something that spells the word cats. You know, you ever want to have something that makes people search for cats on the internet because you're never going to find your resource. <laughs> um, so so the, the, we named it the way we did for a reason. We actually did a lot of Google searches and found a, a combination of words that made sense and was findable. Now these methods that are up here, we'll go through some of them in a bit more detail, but the thing to note is that we've got some quantitative methods down one side and some qualitative methods down the other. These are all on the website. And that what we're telling people is that you don't necessarily need to do all of these for every project, but it's a whole sort of collection of kinds of things one might want to measure and kinds of strategies one might want to use to measure those things. So some of the quantitative measures can give you numbers and numbers of users and how people are using the resource once they get in through log files and so forth, how people are citing it. But then some of the qualitative methods can let you dig more into depth with some of your uh, stakeholder communities and so forth on how they use it specifically, why they use it, how they find it, and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And only by combining both of these can you really start to get a richer idea of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, you know, later, as Pip said, Judith from Ebo and Jonathan Blaney from British History Online will be here, who both use the toolkit uh, quite a lot. And they've done a, a real mix of both of these things in, in their uses, and hopefully they'll be able to talk about that while they're here. Mm. Um, also, some, some new methods that came, have come up since the initial version of the toolkit, although they've now since been added onto the toolkit, are some of the stuff like social media measures. Yeah. How are people mentioning resources on Twitter and how does that change the way people discover stuff? Or Facebook or, or via podcasts or YouTube and so forth. And these sorts of new ways of understanding links to, to websites also add new challenges. And we'll, we'll give a couple examples of that as well. So to start our discussion of some specific projects, why don't we hand over to Catherine for a few minutes sure. and she can walk you through a little bit of what we did and learned about in this first phase. The, the tool, toolkit has since been funded on two additional occasions for one for a complete redesign of the look and feel and some of the content and then just this year for a, I did a review of all the content and so it's just been updated as of last month. So it's nice and fresh and up to date. Mm. 
so Eric's introduced the project to you already. Um, it was funded by JISC. Um, it ran for almost a year, um, from 2008 to 2009, and looked at five of the six uh, resources that had been funded through this first wave of digitization funding, back when there was lots of money for digitization projects. Um, and as, as Eric also said, you know, this wasn't just about measuring the impact of these specific resources and reporting back to JISC. We wanted to do something more than that. And so we, uh, e with each method, we decided to sort of test the efficacy that, um, that we judged um, these methods, um, whether they were fit for purpose, what sort of um, insights they gave us, which ones worked well together, which ones could be you know, um, left out if you just wanted a quick and dirty impact um, assessment. So I'll talk you through a few of these um, as we go. These were the five projects that we were measuring. Um, I'll give you a little bit of context. Does any, do, do people know these projects? Does anyone use them? Yeah. I think probably the most popular one um, we thought was the 19th century newspapers at the British Library. That was hugely popular, long awaited, um, and has had, I think, a really profound effect on the way that um, certainly you know, 19th and 20th century historians see their work. Um, it's, it was a tiny part of their collection. They still, well, they've built a huge new um, repository up in the wilds of the north. Um, to house the, house the, British, uh, the full British Library newspaper collection. It was just a tiny proportion of that collection that was digitized. Um, they also digitized um, a selection of their sound recordings, um, and we studied those. Um, the welcome, welcome project that we studied um, was a selection of their medical journals that um, uh, had a long run, so that you know, they'd only been um, producing a digital copy for the previous sort of decade, and they wanted to digitize the whole of the back collection. So fr uh, from the very beginning, The Lancet, the British Medical Journal, which is not only of interest to clinicians who are looking up first examples of surgeries or um, cases, but it's, you know, it contains a huge amount of social his uh, history. Um, Bopcris um, is one of a suite of resources. Um, this was the 18th century uh, parliamentary publications. It was available um, at the time through the University of Southampton um, on a JISC license that opened it up to UK higher education and further education, but also through ProQuest, who had taken the 18th century material and supplemented it with 19th and 20th century material. So as an impact case study, it was really fascinating to see the difference, um, uh, the different impacts of the open access collection through Southampton with the nice, ac uh, nice acronym BOPCRIS and the ProQuest um, collection that was obviously paper um, institution had quite a different, had quite a few challenges for us um, in researching those, um, lots of interesting insights. Um, and the last one is HISPOP that we've talked about, which I think was our sort of golden project because it ticked a lot of impact boxes. They'd sort of naturally developed a lot of really good strategies for understanding their impact and had, you know, had a great catchy title and um, lots of great communication with their users that, that helped us a lot when we were starting this project. So those were the case studies. And we're going to say a little bit now about each one and some of the specific insights that we learned um, from each of them. So this is what HISPOP looked like. Um, I think it still looks like that. I didn't touch I was down there recently and it looked pretty much the yeah. same. Um, they have updated um, some of their materials since we were looking at them, but basically the, the site is the same. Um, do you want to talk through some of these statistics, Eric? So, so one of the things we did with all these projects is we did a survey of um, 
it wasn't a statistically, uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a random sample survey. It was a survey sent out to lots of people in different humanities disciplines mm. through email lists and various sources we had. And one of the things we wanted to do was discover um, how much people were aware of the different resources we were looking at. And when we, served them, when we surveyed them, we were careful not to just list these five and say, are you aware of these five? We had about 15 or 20 that we listed, uh, most of which we weren't the ones we were looking at, but mm. were similar. To mix the one, and we mixed the ones we were interested in, in amongst them, so we weren't biasing our audience against just saying, yes, I'm aware of this or that. And so the, the chart here shows how many people hadn't, had or hadn't heard of it, and how many used it regularly, or, and so forth. And you can see that HISPOP, actually, not many people had heard of it. And so by this rather crude measure, one could say, well, look, the British Library News, well over half of people have heard of it, or used it, um, and so it must have more impact, right? That people are aware of it. And HISPOP, by far, had the least awareness amongst the community. So if that was the only measure you were looking at, HISPOP doesn't come up very well, right? Mm. But um, if you asked only those people who were users of each of those resources, so the survey had a little branching thing, so if they'd select the different things and then ask them additional questions. Um, so if you ask them, is it important to your research? Is it important to your teaching? Would you recommend it to others? You can see that HISPOP now on the left 96% of those who do use it would recommend it to others, which is by far the highest of any of the resources. And 79% um, say it's important to their field. So even though it's got relatively low awareness, it's partly because it's a fairly niche resource. Mm -hmm. It's not of interest to all historians. It's not of interest to all local historians. It's mm -hmm. of interest to a particular group of people who study these population patterns mm -hmm. and so forth. But of that smaller community, by asking the question this way, we could show that it actually does have quite an impact on this limited community. Mm. And so it's, this is trying to, again, move behind the crude numbers of are people aware of it to a bit more detail of once people are aware of it, how important is it? And all of these actually did pretty well in terms of whether they would recommend it to others and whether it was important to their field. Um, but say, for instance, British Library Sounds, people were you know, somewhat aware of it, but only 60% said that it was necessarily important to their field. It was interesting to them in a lot of interesting ways, mm -hmm. but it wasn't seen as a core resource to what it was that people were doing in this particular sample. Mm -hmm. So um, That really shows the different goals, I think, that the project had as well. Um, so the HISPOP, the, these census reports, they're published reports, um, they're held in most university libraries, so lots of people have access to them. And the, um, the project manager of the digitization um, was himself a historian who'd used the reports many, many times and had a, had a really good sense of who else was using them, mainly population historians, epidemiologists, historical geographers. He knew these communities very, very well. Um, whereas British Library Sound Archive, um, if anyone's tried to use the, the real archive, um, it's quite difficult to get a sense of what's there. You really have to know what's in the archive, and it's quite difficult to gain access to that knowledge. Um, and, and even if you know what's in there, you might not necessarily think it, it could feed your research. You know, if you have to go through so many steps to get to it, you'd have to be reasonably certain that it could, it could fulfill your research aims. Whereas if it's digitized, it's online, you can just dabble. You know, if you have a half an hour with a coffee, you can just throw in a few keywords and see if anything relevant comes up. Um, so, you know, for the British Library Sound Archive, it's important to raise awareness of the collection through the digital product to get people to sort of experiment, just have a go and see if it, you know, see if it was suitable for them and sort of take them that next step down the road, whereas HISPOP was reasonably certain and indeed proved to be quite, you know, quite well versed in who was using that 
resource and who would benefit from a digitised collection in terms of access um, and reliability. Apparently a lot of these paper um, copies were falling apart um, and so just in terms of preservation it was the digital um, product was sort of rescuing um, access to some of these. I remember one of the uh, interesting things when we went and interviewed uh, Matthew. Matthew in his office, he's got a complete collection of these about mm. three feet from his desk where mm. he could reach them. But he said he never uses the paper ones anymore now that he's got the digital one available right. because it was so much more convenient and he could do it from anywhere. He could work on things on the train. Mm. Um, so in his case, it wasn't a lack of access to the materials because they were in his office literally right in front of his face. Mm -hmm. um, but it made it so much easier to use these sorts of things once they became digitally and, and changed the ways that he was able to access it at different times and places that it made it, even for someone with perfect access, mm. uh, some new kinds of things available to him. Mm. I think that's really valuable about understanding how these technologies are shaping research practices as well. That if you're, if you're starting to think about creating a digital product, you want to know that you want to know how people are accessing them, what sort of things they're doing, what time of night or day they like to access these things so you can make sure that you can support that kind of usage. Um, it's just another one, of, another thing to bear in mind. The, uh, uh, I don't know if I should say this on camera. Um, and <laughs> I'll skip it, I'll tell you later. <laughs> if anybody's interested, I'll tell you later. That's what tea and cake's for. Um, another sort of uh, data, this was something that came from HISPOP, was, this was log file data. And it shows, I mean, this is just one crude image from all the log file stuff, but it shows you some interesting things about how you can understand uses at different hours and times of the day. Now this has a fairly predictable pattern of there being use between nine and five UK time, but then there's also this additional use well into the UK evening and even over the UK night mm. that got the people at HESPOP starting to think about, well, what? we're clearly having non-UK uses of this resource that we're able to see in the logs and in the people coming in. And then they started to ex explore more in depth how to go about supporting those populations who are outside the UK. Mm. It's an interesting challenge for a lot of digital resources. Uh, there, there's a number of resources that are only available in the UK. Um, JISC has been very good about negotiating contracts that allow free access in the UK. But that also often excludes people from outside the UK if their libraries haven't subscribed to that. Mm -hmm. And if you are thinking about your impact, you presumably want, for the betterment of knowledge, uh, to be able to transcend national boundaries and get people access to your materials. One of the um, projects that we've looked at in, in, in various times is Old Bailey online. And there's some interesting uses of Old Bailey that that defy the sort of nine to five UK thing, which is that a big pocket of use of Old Bailey is, guess where? Where outside the UK might be interested in the Old Bailey records? Europe. Hmm? Australia. Australia. Right. <laughs> uh, people were taken to the Old Bailey, they were sentenced for crimes, they were shipped off to Australia. So people who are trying to research, research history in Australia want to get back to the Old Bailey records to, to trace the people who've ended up in Australia. Mm. And so there's this interesting spike in the middle of the Australian daytime period for a resource like the Old Bailey Online. Mm. And um, you can start to, you know, there, in Google Analytics, you can see where people are coming from by searches, but through this, you can sometimes see some interesting patterns. Now, one of the things about log files that I should mention, and there's lots more we could say, we've only brought one or two slides. Um, if you think you're going to want to look at log files, and log files can tell you things about which pages people are landing on, how long they stay, some of the kinds of things Google Analytics do, but in much more detail, what paths people take throughout your resource. Um, you need to know that from the very beginning because the default for most web servers 
is to overwrite your log files um, quite frequently, sometimes in a couple of weeks, sometimes in a couple of months. And so if you go back after two years and say to your IT person, oh, can I get all the log files now for my resource? They'll say, well, you should have asked me this years ago because we don't have any of them anymore. They've all been overwritten, and we can give you the last month or the last three months, but we can't give you that whole period. And so if you think you're going to want to look at a bigger, longer period, you need to have somebody storing those off in a place where you, they're accessible to you mm. over the course of the project. Mm. Um, so the other thing to think about with, uh, with things like log files and some of the other quantitative measures is to keep, uh, keep some kind of record, some kind of timeline showing whether you had a major marketing exercise or something was in the press that was related to your resource that was, you know, that might have sent traffic your way. Because when you're looking at these, you know, a year or two years or several years after as we were, you know, it's difficult to sort of um, correlate some of that data to understand some of the shapes that you see um, in terms of, you know, peaks of interest and, and often troughs as well. Um, so if you can, you know, if you're thinking about impact from the very beginning, you know, you can trace those, um, those activities and link them up, um, but you have to remember to write them down first. And I don't think we brought many Google Analytics slides in today, no, but if we, if we want to, maybe during the discussion later on, we can bring up some of my Google Analytics for Tibbs or something, mm -hmm. um, see how we're doing, uh, to, to see the kinds of measures that are available through. How many of you have looked at Google Analytics of, on some, of some site? One, two, three, four, five, six, okay. So about half of you have. The others, um, either afterwards or whatever, we, we might show you some Google Analytics. Google Analytics are one of these tools that are um, really powerful, but they can be um, dangerous too, because some people get bogged down in them and start producing Google Analytics every week. And that doesn't do you much good. You want to be a bit uh, careful in using them. You know, maybe only look at them every six months or something. Just have some sort of set schedule when you look at them. Because for most collections that we're talking about, the amount of traffic you're likely to get on a short period of time is relatively small. I mean, to be honest with ourselves. Mm. We're not running uh, you know, Amazon.com here. Uh, we're running things that are going to be in the hundreds, sometimes even in the tens, some, sometimes in the thousands or tens of thousands in relatively few cases up in the millions in, a, in any given week or month. Mm -hmm. um, so you need to pick a, a period of time that makes sense for the size of resource you've got to be able to look at the kinds of changes you might be able to see over the course of a year or the course of various months and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that uh, both Google Analytics and log file analysis will let you do is look at how people are finding your resource based on the search phrases that they're using to come in. And this can tell you some interesting things. Now, Obviously, lots of people are searching for HISPOP and finding HISPOP, which mm -hmm. says that their name is very findable, which is good. Um, but also some of the things like you know, the Registrar General or um, you know, people just looking for stuff about the British population are finding their resource based on these mm. particular search terms. They also, um, one of the things HISPOP did is they knew from both some of the search terms that were landing there and also from their experiences that there was a kind of person that might land on their site that probably wasn't that interested mm. in HISPOP, which is the family historian trying to figure out their family history. Because the HISPOP files are um, aggregate level census statistics, not individual names. And so they put some information fairly clear up on their page to saying, if you're looking for family history stuff, this isn't necessarily the right place. There's some other places you could look. Mm. Because those people aren't going to find, they get frustrated trying to look for their family mm. member in these historical reports because they don't exist. If they're interested in how many people lived in a particular village or a particular uh, region, that might be helpful for this. 
And actually, they did find that, didn't they? So when we were going through the user um, reports data, so one of the things that Histopop had was a very clear email address that you could contact for help. And this is where the family historians would you know, pour in and say, can you help me with this person or that person? And Matthew would very patiently re uh, respond to these emails and say, it's not really what we do, but you might be interested in. And so suddenly there's a sort of a, a connection for family historians who might never have looked at these documents if they were, had to go to the library to look at them finding really fascinating con context for their family history, you know, if, the, if they had a relative who died in a flu epidemic or, you know, a cholera outbreak, suddenly that sort of information is given, or if they were in an asylum or a prison, you know, there's lots of really interesting contextual information there about what prison conditions were like at the time, what sorts of people were finding themselves committed to asylums. So, you know, uh, something that may have been sort of scoffingly um, encountered, you know, they, they won't want our resource. When you dig a little bit deeper and find out what this, you know, what this audience actually really wants, you know, there, there is something there for them. So it's sort of multiple ways of dealing with it, you know, really prominently advertising what you do do, but also giving people who might have come in from a slight tangent a way of accessing the resource and getting something from it. Um, oh, and while we're on search terms, which resource was it? I don't remember now. In one of my reports, you can find this, and I can look it up. Um, <laughs> one resource that I can't remember off the top of my head, I can look up if you're really interested. Um, one of the things they found out from their log files is that lots of people who were searching for things that landed on their site were landing really deep in their site rather than in a fairly shallow page. And that the navigation on those deep pages wasn't very easy for people to figure out how to get back to a place where they could look for other things on their site. So they had people coming in, finding a specific page, and then going back out because they couldn't figure out their way around the site. And by look, learning that from the um, log files, they redesigned their site so that even if you landed deep, you could find your way back to navigational portions of the site to look for other things. And that really increased the amount of time people were spending on their site because they would land in deep and then start looking for other things once they got there. And it was a fairly simple change, but they didn't think to make it until they figured out that most people weren't coming in through the home page and proceeding in an orderly fashion like a researcher should. Mm. They were end ending up right in the middle of a document and then trying to work their way out from there. Mm. Um, I think we've talked about most of these mm -hmm. uh, aspects as well. Okay, so on to the 19th century newspapers. Um, so in terms of access, um, you could only access this resource from the UK if you were um, in an institution of higher education or further education. And when we delved into some of the impacts um, of this resource, we found a huge interest from the United States. Lots of people were blogging about it from there, wanting to access the resource. So it was a huge sort of bottleneck, really. Um, but one thing that did show the British Library is that they had a massive market out there. And so when we spoke to them, they were in the process of organizing a pay-per-view um, system, which is now up and running. So if, if access is an issue for you, if you can't license it for certain kinds of audiences, but you do want to reach them, you know, there are ways around that. There, there are ways of interpreting the impact data to point you towards those sorts of solutions. Um, what else have we got from there? <laughs> this is what it looked like. This was the basic search. I mean, there were a few um, OCR issues um, with the British Library newspapers at the time, which I think have been now mostly cleared up. Mostly cleared up. Um, and that's one of the frustrations that, that we came across when we were working with the project. And that's something that, um, that again, is important to 
to think about. If you're collecting impacts in the very beginning and your resource has a long life, which we hope they all do, you, you, can, you can observe the impact of certain glitches, frustrations, functionality issues at the beginning and then show hopefully a lovely arc of a boom of interest and impact and usage once you've ironed some of those things out. I think you know some of these measures will help you identify some of those issues. Some will naturally occur um, to you um, when you're managing the project. But you know the data surrounding it gives you a great context for understanding what impact those glitches have had and how you've managed to overcome them. I mean, one of the things we discovered from talking to various uh, users and potential users of the newspaper pro product projects in the 19th century and others as well is that um, many of the tools that were built to access newspapers assumed that you were looking for a particular item and you're going to go look at a page in a newspaper as if you were looking at a newspaper mm. in a collection and that you gather whatever information you want about that and then you go look for something else. But we found increasingly numbers of people who wanted to do, say, corpus linguistics type techniques mm. on collections of newspapers spanning mm. a time period. They wanted access to all the text so they could put it into um, you know, different uh, algorithms and so forth to try and figure out the changes in uh, word usage or the, the growth of certain topics and mm -hmm. such over time. The things that some of you may have, how many of you have used um, Google's Ngram Viewer? One, two, okay, go play with it, it's fun. Uh, if you look at uh, Google Ngram, N-G-R-A-M, it is the collection of words from all Google's digitized books. You all know about the Google Books project, right, where they digitize many, many books from many, many libraries, including Oxford and others. Um, and the Google Ngram collection, Ngram just means N is the number, and so it's one grams is individual words, two grams is pairs of words, three grams is three words together in a phrase. And so you can find it. Um, on this nice little graph. Does this thing have internet access? Probably. <laughs> Let me show you quickly. So they put in Albert Einstein, Sherlock Holmes, and Frankenstein. We can probably come up with something better than that. Um, between 1800 and 2000 from the English language corpus. And so it shows you from 1800 to 2000 the frequency of those particular words or phrases in the Google Books scanning project. Now, some of this is just a bit of fun for playing, but I've seen people starting to write serious academic papers based mm -hmm. on the Google Ngrams data. You can also download Google Ngrams data to work with it in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, you can, you, they've got a way to download their, their body of text. It, it's not the original raw words, it's the counts of each kind of word in the different years. So um, yeah, what's something we can put in? I think we've got some interesting stuff from a while back. American spelling uh, so, so what's a word that has two different spellers? So which one's blue? Specialized with a Z is with a Z is blue. So the Z spelling is winning out. <laughs> um, and you can see that it's winning out more as the 20th century comes comes into play. Mm. Now, one of the tricks with this is you have to 
be a little careful with this because odd things can sometimes happen. It's big, they cleaned it up a lot. Like there's this, I don't know what's going on down here in 1600 that there's this weird little blip down here. Um, there used to be this big blip at um, 1900 for um, around the late 19th century for the word internet. I think it's gone now. Um, internet, let's see if they cleaned it up. So it's gone. There used to be this big spike down in here. There's still this weird little activity down here in the 1700s <laughs> um, for the word internet. And I suspect what's going on there is we, I did a bit of searching, and there was a common um, uh, abbreviation of the word international, which was internat back then, international something, international this, I-N-T-R-N-A-T period, and that the OCR was mis-OCRing some of the internat as internet. Um, this, they cleaned up some of their data, and so this spike has gone down. But there used to be quite a large spike back in the 19th century of internet-related work. Um, I mean, that's something to mention in terms of if you're teaching um, students to use resources generally, and one of the suite of resources that they might look at are digitized resources, um, OCR can throw up some interesting problems. So we spoke to a researcher who was looking at um, protest across you know, a couple of centuries, and um, they found that the word riot was, um, if, if you were looking for instances of the word riot, often you'd get lots of instances of not. So it was, you know, you couldn't make sort of statements based on numbers. You were just looking for a quick quantitative analysis of how, how many times a certain word would crop up. You know, you have to go into it in a little bit more depth. So, you know, it does speed things up, but you also have to be a little bit careful about um, how, you, how you depend on just hit counts of a particular word. Okay, so a bit of a little diversion there, but, mm -hmm. but interesting nevertheless. Um, So, so that, um, how I got onto that was the idea that more and more people are wanting to do things like look at entire bodies of newspapers rather than individual pages. Mm. Uh, and that's increasingly common for a number of different kinds of resources. Mm. And so keeping that in mind in terms of the kinds of access that you build um, is important. Mm. We saw a big shift with historians, didn't we, after the British Library Newspapers Project had launched. Um, there, was a couple, there were a couple of really big conferences in the following year that saw a huge spike of quantitative projects of exactly the kind that we um, just described. Yeah. People using want, the, newspaper, using the news, newspaper collection in different ways. Um, and you know, uh, it, had, it had some really interesting impacts. You know, lots of people were um, hesitant about that sort of development. I think people are becoming a bit more acclimatized to it now. Now this slide, we might come back at the end and talk about this as a group, um, mm -hmm. this, this question of citation habits. And we raised this at this point because it, we got some good British Library News data on here, as you'll see. This was from, again, our survey asking how people cite stuff that they publish out of digital collections. And we said, you know, have you ever published a piece based on your work? And this was of people who've used the thing. Um, so remember, 46% of not that many people had um, heard of HISPOP, but the ones who used it, over uh, nearly half had published something based on their work in it. Um, but the, the data over here on the right with the colored bars asks, how do you cite it when you use it? And you see for the British Library News, nearly or over half just cite the piece of paper as if they'd gone and consulted it um, in Colindale or wherever that, mm -hmm. happened, that paper happened to be, mm -hmm. um, with no indication that they'd ever used a digital version. Now, we can discuss you know, whether that's conceptually a better idea or not. You know, there's, there's lots of high feelings that come up when you talk to humanities people about citation practices. But the fact of the matter is, if you're a digital collection and you've made all your library newspapers available digitally, 
and everybody's only citing the paper versions, it's very difficult for you to prove that anybody's using what you've done because all the, you've got no citations that show anybody ever consulted your digital materials, right? Um, some smaller percentage in, in many of those cases cited the original plus uh, URL or something that indicates it's digital. A very much smaller percentage cited only the online version and a few did some sort of other thing. Now, one of the things that, again, HISPOP, which is our sort of golden um, example here on the top, you'll see, only 9% only cited the, the paper version and most were citing the original plus some digital version or the digital version. And this is partly because HISPOP um, used what the economists call nudges. You've all read or heard of the idea of a nudge where you nudge people toward the behavior you want them to do. And HISPOP did this by including suggested citations with their materials that included an indicator that it came from this digital collection and included it in a way that was short and succinct and that it wouldn't be deleted by editors. You know, if you give them a URL and it's five lines long and it's all computer code, most editors are gonna delete it from the bibliography of re references and sometimes they will anyway, even if it's short. But um, if you include a indication that it came from your collection, then um, one of the things we'll show you later with um, looking for links to your collection, we can find those things using automated techniques in the literature and we can say, look, people are citing your resource and they're doing it by including this URL. Mm -hmm. So um, for British Library News, for them to be able to demonstrate how many people are using their digital materials, it's very difficult by looking at the citation patterns because they can maybe say, well, after we made it available, the references to Brit newspapers held in the BL News collection went up, mm -hmm. but they could have really come from anywhere, mm -hmm. so we can't really prove that they came from us, versus if there's some sort of indication that it came through your collection, you can say, look, it came from our collection, they said it did. Um, so that helps us show what our impacts are. Now, everyone's looking a bit heat, uh, exhausted and it's been about an hour so why don't we take a little short break sure um, maybe open the windows a bit and try and cool everybody off a tiny bit and then we'll come back and we'll talk about some other things so that we don't all pass out <laughs> okay <laughs> the things that we found when we were looking at the british library newspapers was this incredibly rich um context in blogs so we did a google blog search and looked at all the references for british library newspapers which is a brilliant thing to do if you're looking for your resource um, or even your subject area to see what sort of resources are being um, used in your subject area. Because you can, you know, if you look through the, if you have a little bit of time to look at each individual blog, you can really get the measure of how people are using it, you know, whether they're advertising it in their teaching resources, whether they've had an amazing revelation in their research, whether they've looked and they hated it or they wanted to use it and they couldn't because of some, you know, access issue or some functionality problem. So it's, it can give you an incredibly rich range of context for your research. And um, when, I, when I talked earlier about the fact that lots of, there was a huge audience in the US that was excited about the British Library newspapers that couldn't access it at that time, this is where a lot of that information came from. A lot of blogs from US academics saying, look at this incredible resource, what a shame we can't get to it right now. Um, why don't we sort of speed through a couple sure. of these, we get to some of the other topics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, just just briefly mention this, yeah. Yeah, so this, we had a really interesting um, focus group with the, um, with the archivists from the British Library Sound Archive. Um, and one thing we found, which I think was pretty common, I think, with digitization projects, is there had been a little bit of a disconnect between the digitization project team and the curators who were there on the ground who'd been using this, this stuff for you know, decades and working with users. Um, they hadn't, I mean, they'd been consulted at the beginning of the project, but then somehow that kind of relationship hadn't, they hadn't had joint meetings for some time. And so there was this huge expertise that had been slightly 
missed in some of the projects there. And, and one of the reasons we bring this up is because I've, I've actually written papers on the idea of um, when you're thinking about who might be using your collection, um, you also have to think about who in the process, whether it's users or creators or curators, once you digitize it, are you excluding anybody mm. who previously was involved in the process? And mm. sometimes the people who maintained and curated the, the paper collections are all too frequently excluded from the whole process of making the digital version. Mm. And that can um, lead not only to uh, bad feelings within an organization, but it can also lead to missed opportunities um, because there's a lot of expertise available often amongst that group. And I think that's, that's really what came across with the British Library. There was, there was nothing deliberate. And I think, you know, in these early days of digitization projects, you know, these um, sorts of connections just hadn't been made before. And so with the best will in the world, everybody wanted to talk to each other, but there had been some time between meetings. And so things that had been raised or, you know, it hadn't occurred to people at the beginning of the process suddenly had become obvious and they wanted to communicate. And so just by going in and doing some of these focus groups, um, we were able to sort of bring some of those up and enable people to, to reconnect. And some of the digitization projects, the digitization itself had been outsourced to private companies, mm. and so that had even more of a risk of people with expertise about the collections not having much involvement in the process because it left the building and sort of didn't come back until it was done. Mm. Um, so, so real briefly, uh, so some of the other kinds of evidence are available uh, is things like looking in news about a resource. And some of these weren't talked about very much in the news, but the um, British Library newspapers and sound art um, recordings uh, were talked about a bit more. And one of the reasons that for that is because the British Library had this thing called an engagement officer at the time. I don't know if they still have one. Mm. But they had a full-time person whose job was engaging the media and the public and so forth with their resource. Now, not everybody has access to that, but the people who can you know, carve out maybe portion of somebody's time or if you've got the resources to commit, commit some of that, it can really make a difference in how widely uh, a collection is talked about and disseminated by having somebody as that part of their remit rather than just an afterthought when you're done and thinking, oh, well, really, we ought to tell somebody about this, but having somebody who's thinking about that through the course of the project of how do we tell people about this. Um, we've talked a little bit about the project itself, so let's, let's move on a bit. Um, I think one of the things to um, just quickly mention about this one is the fact the, the, there was an odd nature about the Welcome Medical Journal Stockpiles Project, which is this is old copies of medical journals, um, but where they decided to house it. So maybe yeah. you can mention this. So, um, so this is so the current issues of the journals that were automatically being digitally um, made digitally available were going through PubMed Central, which is this, the central resource for medical articles. And so, of course, it makes sense if you're um, digitizing back issues of the same journal that they would be found through here. But this was slightly unfamiliar territory for their sort of primary target audience of medical historians. Um, you know, historians are used to using things like JSTOR, and that's normally where they would go and look for old articles. Um, and so we did find that some, when we did sort of focus groups around this resource, lots of people were saying, mm, this is unfamiliar, you know, we don't quite search in the same way. So there were some sort of disciplinary um, differences here that were made very relevant by putting all of the content in here. And it also found, we found it was very difficult to measure impact just by looking for the URL because, you know. It's buried in amongst it's, this. It's, 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 the, it's the needle in the haystack problem, right. right? You've got this haystack of all articles on medi medical topics, mm. and the historical collections are sort of buried in amongst them. Mm. And it's difficult to sort those out because you can't mm. just look for anything referring to PubMed Central and saying this is part of the digitization impact because that'd be nonsense, right? Mm. It's only a tiny portion of the collection. Right. 
Um, so there, they, they weren't the typical pub, PubMed users, and they weren't, the clinicians wouldn't normally be reading 100-year-old articles. Um, now, I mentioned that uh, when we surveyed people, we embedded our resources amongst a list of others. There's most of the others that we embedded amongst. And one of the things we did with that um, awareness was to look at awareness both inside and outside the UK. And you can see for most of these, um, except for uh, Chronicling America, I guess, the awareness of these primary British resources were higher inside the UK than outside the UK. Um, and some of the difference was fairly significant in terms of its, its visibility both inside and outside. But the question that we then pushed all the project to think about was, well, is that natural? Is, that, is, is the UK really your only audience? Or are there things that people, in, you know, historians or other scholars in other countries would be wanting to use, about, use your resource for if they knew it was available or if they were able to access it, if it was available to them through either subscription or free? Mm -hmm. And some of them started to rethink their resources by, by being just presented this data showing that they had, you know, say for instance, you know, nearly complete awareness inside the UK, but very, very low awareness by users outside the UK. And that mm -hmm. started to make them rethink some of their, their policies. I think it also makes the point that, you know, with all of these impact measures, it's really important to think about where you are in a sort of community of resources, which, which resources are the ones that you really want to be like, or you know, um, which other ones are really relevant to your subject area, and how well are they doing? What is it that they're doing differently that makes them really successful? So if you're, if you're based within a project and you want to know more about how successful, how impactful your project is, it helps to know how impactful those that you consider to be like yours or um, significantly different to yours, but you know um, that you aim to emulate in some way. Um, it's important to get get a sense of where they are, so that you can then show where you are in competition with them. Yeah, when we're working with projects, we often one of the first things we have to do is to list some resources they think the same people who use theirs might also be using that are in some way similar or at least attracting the same audience. We've got some benchmarks. Um, we'll come back to the, this topic in a minute. So here's. Uh, the link to the website, but again, you can just Google PIDSR and you get there. This is a screenshot just taken today, so this is the updated version. Um, and let me again just pop out to uh, um, here. So that takes you there. Um, and you can see these methods we've been talking about. They've got pull-down menus and let you go in and say, okay, well, I'm interested in analytics. And we've got a little article on what are they, what are some of the software tools you can use, how do you understand what it is you're doing with them, what are some other readings you might want to do for that topic. And these are available for all the different things we've got in the toolkit, these similar kinds of things. Another thing, um, so we've got all the quantitative methods, all the qualitative methods. Also, the case studies are, um, I think, one of the most useful places for most people to start which is um, a report I've written and some general things, but also um, a lot of projects that have used TIDSR. So like Judith will be here talking about EBO. This is a project I did with her and the case study is here online. So you can go read the reports about EBO. Um, if you're interested in uh, some dance archives or listening for impact, there's lots of different things here that have all the reports and things of people who've used the resource. And that's a good way to see what data they've collected and what they were able to understand and what changes they made based on their resource. That's a good place to start, I think, for a lot of people to start reading some of those case studies. Um, and if you ever uh, find something that you want to change or add to this, just let us know. We're always keen to extend it and 
make it better. So that's the toolkit, and like I said, it was first made, um, <laughs> Catherine did a lot of the early work with my help, and then we did updates in, in 2011 and 2013 both. So it's, it's constantly being updated, or at least regularly being updated, I don't know about constantly, regularly being updated. Uh, and JISC have um, put a lot of effort into maintaining it over the years and have indicated that they want it to keep going for the foreseeable future. Both JISC and AHRC have identified it as sort of the source of best practice in terms of measuring impact. Let's also mention another report, if you're interested in this topic, that came out last year from Simon Tanner, who's a colleague of ours at um, King's, who wrote this report on measuring the impact of digital resources. And we're quite pleased that he, he our toolkit favor, features heavily in this report. Um, when he talks about the, the approaches one might take, he refers people to our toolkit frequently mm -hmm. and says that he identifies it as the, the method of finding out how to do this that's easy to use and um, available to non-specialists. Um, and also, I'll refer you to my report. And this report came out of the 2011 uh, rebuild, but also has, um, we, we just, at the, in 2011, funded seven additional projects. And the goal of the funding was to have them go in and use the toolkit to do their own projects without our help. Um, and to see if all the tools worked for someone who didn't have any guidance outside of just being able to access the website. And they all worked really well. And all their reports are available, and then they had me um, synthesize all seven of these projects together. So the individual reports are available, but then this is the synthesis. And so that gives you an insight into some of the kinds of things that you can find <coughs> by looking at different measures. And I won't go into the details because we don't really have time, but we looked at the Oxford University podcast, Old Bailey Online, British History Online, who you'll be hearing from in a little bit when Jonathan's here. Um, and I'll just briefly mention this, showing some of the different scale that uh, number of links. So this is from Webometrics. You can see that something like Okay. Um, something like the Old Bailey Online has lots of in-links compared to, say, Savan Davis' dance replay, which is only 35. Again, trying to show you that the um, scale of these raw numbers can't be the only measure, that there's, there's lots of interesting reasons to think that Savan Davis' dance replay has a lot of impact in a very limited community. So Siobhan Davis' dance replay, the really interesting project about dance resources for students. And then um, some of these uh, quick measures that are now available on Tinder which is doing things like Twitter. Um, there's a very interesting, uh, in, in the toolkit, you can find some tools for collecting Twitter data. So if you're interested in how people are tweeting about your project, um, there's this excellent little, um, I'll show you the link to it if you go to Web 2.0 stuff. And if you get onto the Twitter article, if you've got a resource that doesn't get talked about lots, um, so, um, say less than a few thousand mentions of it in the course of whatever time you're collecting data on. I highly recommend this tags uh, tool. So it was made by um, Martin Hoxie, and it, all it runs is in, in a Google spreadsheet. So if you've got Google Docs, you can run this. You don't need any other infrastructure at all. And you follow these links, and you open up his web page, and it copies a document into your Google Docs page. And then it, he's got some very simple instructions on how to set it up. And then it'll go out and start automatically collecting all the tweets on whatever either hashtag or handle you tell it to collect. And it'll collect them every hour or every day, however often you tell it to do it. And it'll put them in a spreadsheet. And then you're done, and you've got it as a spreadsheet. I could, I, you know, maybe during afterwards I could show you one of these. Um, it just puts it in a nice, easy to read spreadsheet. And it gives you some basic analytics, but it also gives you a table with all the tweets, all the tweeters, all the tweets who it was to. And it, it requires no infrastructure at all other than having a Google Docs account. 
and it works up to about 5,000, and then you start to run into the limits of how big a Google spreadsheet can get as it starts to break. And you can either make another page, or if you're gonna have a huge collection that's getting you know, 5,000 a day, you gotta use some other methods, which are also talked about here. But um, I found that not a lot of people know how to start collecting tweets of that nature, and a tool like this makes it extremely easy just to start collecting all the tweets about your project and about a couple of um, handles that you wanna follow and so forth. And those sorts of measures are increasingly being useful to just see on a regular basis. How are people, you know, say during a conference, a bunch of people start tweeting all of a sudden about your resource, and what are they tweeting about it, and how can you start to understand the kinds of things that they're doing, and what are the links that they're giving? I think just as an academic as well, you know, um, showing your own impact. If you're working on a project that's been funded, it's a brilliant way to identify sort of traffic around the, the subject that you're proposing. So, you know, I organized a conference this year as part of my funding, and I have a great sort of Twitter archive showing the excitement beforehand, what people were saying on the back channel during the day, and, you know, sort of follow-up storifies that people had made afterwards, sort of talking about the conference and what it had meant to them. It's a brilliant, sort of nice, succinct way to show your funders, this is the impact my conference had, you know, or this is one lens on the impact that my conference had. Um, I'm going to just briefly mention this. I'll probably talk a little bit about it more tomorrow morning. Um, this was some work we did with the Research Information Network trying to understand information practices in the humanities. And I only wanted to briefly mention this um, for a couple little data points. Um, one which has to do, and there were a number of case studies involved in this, and I won't go into any detail at all. But one has to do with how people find stuff in the humanities fields. And one of the questions we asked is, is there a Googleopoly? You know, this is the notion, right, that everyone just goes to Google and Google owns all search and Google owns how people find out about things. And so in a survey of a different group of users that you've seen in the previous tables, um, we asked, how do you, when, you, when you're looking for topic, uh, information on a new topic in the humanities, in your research topic, where do you go for information? And a lot say Google, right? 80% say they go to Google or 66 said they went to Google Scholar. And so people can say, oh, well, you know, Google, you just have to be Google, that's the only place people look. But when you ask what other kinds of resources that they're using to find information on the humanity topics, you can see that they're doing lots of other things as well. So nearly two-thirds are still visiting libraries or browsing library materials online. 83% um, use citation chaining, so following citations from one source to the next and being able to follow that through, uh, which highlights, again, this question of how do they cite your resource? Well, if, it's, if the way they're finding new resources is by chaining through the citations, if the link to your resource is embedded in the citation, that'll lead them back to your resource, which means they're more likely to use that as well. And so knowing that this is how humanity scholars work helps to know that that's the way you need to help people find their way into it. Um, also, the bottom uh, data is extremely interesting that the 95% said, I ask people that I trust and I know that I think might know something about a topic. And this is true across the disciplines. We did a similar study with physics, physics, phys physical scientists physics and uh, mathematicians and things like that. And their number was about the same for consulting peers. The way they find out about new topics is to go ask people that they trust and that they know. So again, this highlights if you want to get your resource known, it's gotta be at least partly through word of mouth. You've gotta get people talking about it in their papers, but also in their talks. And when they're talking about uh, at the conference, the resources that they found helpful, you want them mentioning yours because this is how other people are finding out about it. Um, and this, the, 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 that research and all of our research has highlighted this general question of the fact that the digital tools are showing you know, widespread implications of the changes in the way people do their work, you know, that they can find things more quickly, they can make more connections, um, and it makes the nature of research different. It allows you to think about new ways you might use information differently. 
And to know that means that the best digital collections are ones that are opening up these possibilities. So for some, it's making things like APIs available. Now, most of, most of you may or may not know much about APIs. It lets programmers go in and do things with your resource, mash things up. Um, if you make them available, sometimes people do things with them that are interesting and are far beyond what you imagined them for. Uh, there's, there's some good examples of JISC projects that have done things like uh, you know, mapped historic bits of London by linking di different data together and different materials in, in the Connected Communities projects and so forth. Um, so that's a, a, a general overview of some of the things we've done. Now, and thanks also to funders who funded this, this work amongst other things. Now we've got some various um, possible discussion topics. We've got about a half an hour left. We're not gonna talk about all of these. We'll leave it up to you um, of the kinds of things we'll talk about. So we've got some questions about discoverability, you know, how people find things and who's finding them. Uh, there was some indication you wanna talk a little bit about the citation question. Um, one of the things we didn't talk much about today was community engagement. Mm -hmm. Catherine can talk about a project that she's been working on a lot lately. Mm -hmm. Maybe just briefly mention what it is. Sure, so it's an HRC uh, funded project um, to uh, look at the impact of crowdsourcing on, a, on a, a single collection called Your Paintings, which is a collaboration between the BBC and the Public Catalogue Foundation. So they're using crowdsourcing to sort of um, create the metadata that will enable the collection to be properly searched. Um, so I was testing the, the TIBSA toolkit to see if that if these measures of impact could be applied to a slightly different context and a much more public-facing um, context. So yeah. I can talk, I'm happy to talk about that as we go along. And then uh, the last two topics are about the question of having resources to measure resources, which is always a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, and one of the things that we bring this up is, particularly for those of you who are thinking of putting in proposals, um, funders are often quite impressed if you put in resources that say, look, we need a certain amount of funding and able to be able to support this measurement. Um, but if you don't think about it until after you've already submitted your proposal, it's then too late to add it in. So you need to think about this before you've done the proposal so that you can include enough time for somebody to spend on doing some of these measures and using these tools and so forth. Um, in our experience, uh, projects that you know, link to either our toolkit or other methods in their proposals often get quite strong comments back from reviewers that that was really nice that they thought about that and it, it helps their proposals overall, I think, to show that they've taken it seriously and are linking to existing resources. I think it underpins a, um, something that the AHRC have mentioned um, a, a few times, which is about this pathways to impact that they have as part of their funding protocol. Um, that they don't necessarily want you to identify specific impacts that you will have. And it's great if you can do that, but you know the point of this toolkit and what they want you to show in that section, I think, is that you understand how you might be able to identify impacts that might not have occurred to you at the beginning of the project. And Obviously, some will and some won't, and those that you that you can gather that data, that you can exploit them, that you can make your project have e an even greater impact than you might originally expect. And then uh, this final topic of the impact agenda, you know, sort of the big movements agenda versus this more soft understanding your impact and trying to increase it. So. I think we're open for anything. Hopefully mm -hmm. you are still interested and want to talk about something, so. Oh, sorry. Find <laughs> your way over on this side. I mean, I think one thing that um, the original projects were a little bit nervous of when we started working with them was that we would go in with lots of quantitative measures and say, well, there's this many clicks or there's this many users, and that means that this resource is better than that resource. Well, they were all doing things well, you know, and the point of this impact toolkit is not to say, 
you know, you're not doing enough or you've only got X number of users, you might only have a small group of users compared to a much more broadly um, uh, manipulable resource. But if you've hit all of the people who are, work who are working with that stuff and a few more, that's an amazing success, you know. So don't, you know, try not, we, we really wanted this toolkit to underline the idea that, you know, having an impact can be interpreted in lots of different ways and it's not about being the person with the greatest number of downloads or the most number of clicks on the, on the front page, yeah. you know, that this, this toolkit will help you understand much deeper impacts and much more interesting things about your users. And I think it's safe to say JISC have totally bought this idea mm -hmm. and AHRC have pretty well bought this idea, you know, um, that, they, that, that there's not sort of a single measure that says your impact is 1.9 or whatever, right. that there is a range of things and that you can understand this in different ways. 